episode 101 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast, your weekly Milwaukee Brewers podcast. I'm Ryan Top, and I'm joined, like always, today by J.P. Breen. And this week, filling in for Steve, is special guest Eric Name. Uh, he's the Milwaukee Bucks beat writer for The Athletic and host of the Locked on Bucks podcast. How's it going, Eric? It's great. Thanks for having me on, guys. I'm glad to have you. We're looking around, and we have a couple weeks here to fill with Steve while he's on his various vacations and taking care of his child's birthday. So we uh, well, and it's not, I would say it's not like Eric hasn't done stuff on the on the Brewers in the past. He's just now like living the dream of covering <laughs> covering a, like a really good NBA team, right? No, I mean it's not bad. I, I have very few complaints. I, I've really come a long way from I mean let's see 11 years ago asking you if I could write at Bernie's crew and like doing that. So like that, like that's how far back we're talking. Like that's how long we've known each other is like, that's where I first started writing. So it's, it's a long, strange trip to now 11 years later, uh, be talking about the Brewers with you on a podcast, which I don't think I would have even thought of in 2008 because podcasts weren't really a thing like this at that yeah, point. They were just getting started at that point. Weren't yeah. They? So I, I could never even have imagined this. So this is, this is pretty wild stuff. So, like, the biggest thing that I'm always shocked by is, right, you see all these, you see all the basketball players on television, right? And, like, the biggest thing is when you see baseball players on television, you look at somebody like Ryan Braun, they're like, he's not big, and his, like, forearms are massive. Yes. Right? Um, and so, for, like, is is it just otherworldly to stand next to some, like, John, obviously, you know, there are some, like, Boban is, is, is massive, but, like, does it make you feel extremely small to stand next to some of those folks at all times? Like I'm six foot two. So like, I was gonna say standing like, next to you, we're about the same size. Yeah. So, so like I'm pretty tall. So like normally in the world, I'm just like tall and then I'm just sort of, like around seven footers all the time. So like I'm always reaching up like, Hey Giannis, uh, could you please speak into this? Like, uh, like I'm a little dweeb and it's like, I'm six foot two. I'm a grown <laughs> man. And I feel like an idiot all the just time. Just imagine being like Sophia's size. And oh, I can't just, imagine. Like you have imagine. to like get like an, uh, a selfie stick or something to hold the microphone up. Like. No. Like, and, and Sophia's like short, like she's short, short like that. Oh it, yeah. Like that would be I stood next to her and I'm like, she's on four inch heels and she's like, five foot two yeah, with like no, four inch heels on. So no, she's tiny. Well, have you seen the the picture of Boban next to uh, uh, Chris and Chenoweth? Yes. It's unbelievable. It's yeah. Unbelievable. It's like half the size. If that there's no way they're the same species. Like I don't, I refuse <laughs> to believe it. Right. You're just like, I was like, I don't understand how that's not Photoshop. <laughs> like it, it, it has to be it's right. Crazy. It's like the Altuve and, uh, and, uh, uh, Oh, who was it? Aaron judge, right? Oh yeah. Those two yeah, standing next to each other. If you added a foot to Aaron Judge, yeah, and like subtracted a foot from, <laughs> that's the stupidest thing. It's like Aaron Judge, were like he's a massive human. I was like, yeah, add a foot. Yeah, pretty much. Oh yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, you can help fans find the podcast by rating and reviewing Milwaukee's Tailgate on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We want listener questions, so follow Milwaukee's Tailgate on Twitter at MKE Tailgate. Email questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or follow our Facebook page. You can also follow the three of us on Twitter, and you'll find that on our Milwaukee's Tailgate Twitter bio. And uh, you want to throw yours in there real quick, Eric? Uh, What's... At Eric underscore name, E-R-I-C underscore N-E-H-M. Just in case you aren't following him yet, you definitely should. Um, and finally, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can visit patreon.com slash M-K-E tailgate. Our M&B and Ball and Glove uh, patrons receive the monthly Minor League Extra podcast, which will have a new one coming out probably not this upcoming week, but the week after, JP. 
Does it sound yeah, right? We gotta, yep, we got to let the trade deadline pass, and we might be talking about some of the prospects from the Brewers organization that are on the move, and maybe if something weird happens, we might be talking about a prospect or two that are being added to the to the organization. Uh, we've got the J2 deadline, or, or the, the J2 signings to talk about. Yeah, it'll be a good one. Yep. Um, and finally, uh, Milwaukee's tailgate is sponsored by Carbon 4 Brewing and their English-style malt bombs and perfectly balanced hop grenades. You know them for their great beers like Dragon Flute, Block Party, and f- their flagship Fantasy Factory IPA. If you're looking for a place to host your fantasy football draft, the K4 Tap Room on Kinsman Boulevard in Madison is offering buy two, get one free pitchers, and a pitcher race for all the draft parties. Um, so you can call 608-241-4812. You can email Sammy, and that's S-A-M-M-I, at carbon4.com. And that's carbon spelled out, K-A-R-B-E-N, and then the letter for, or the number for, the number for, and then .com. Or you can stop by uh, to reserve a space today. And as always, you can get 20% off merch in the Carbon 4 web store with the promo code MKETailgate. Check out Carbon4.com for more information. Carbon 4, beer brilliance. All right. So this was one hell of a roller coaster week. And we actually, we try not to do this, but we really do need to go back to last Sunday. Because we recorded before the game. And in that game, which the Brewers came back and won in pretty wonderful fashion, um, they took a big hit when they lost Brandon Woodruff for, at this point, it looks like about six weeks, though. It's tough because it's an oblique injury, so you just don't know what that's going to look like. Um, really, really unfortunate to see Woodruff go down, considering the season he was having. True breakout as a starting pitcher. Um, how much do you think this affects them, uh, JP? Well, I'm not necessarily sure. I Obviously, I'll get the, the obvious thing. Obviously, losing their best starting pitcher this year is is a big loss. I, I don't think there's any way to get around that. But kind of foreshadowing to some of the other things that we're going to talk about this week, it's actually the kind of the the com. It's the combination of all of these injuries all at once because any one person going down, the Brewers have enough pitching depth, at least in the starting pitching department, that they can plug and play. It's all of a sudden seeing a, a rotation that had potentially seven or eight guys that could step in to maybe now only having four or five that things get really sketchy. Um, so Woodruff, I think is, is one of the guys that, that kind of had become, I don't, I'm not necessarily sure stopper is the right word, but he had become the guy that like um, was almost a, anonymous when pitching because he'd just been solid. Right. And like every time that, you know, you've got Chase Anderson, if he has a blow up or or, or Zach Davies has a blow up and, and Shasin was, you know, kind of the biggest culprit of it lately where everybody says, you know, should so and so be replaced or what are we going to do in the future? Like, is, is Shasin going to move to the bullpen? Does he need to take some time off? What's council going to do? Uh, and, and Woodruff was just somebody that went out every fifth day, grabbed the ball and was generally uh, solid. He had one or two really spectacular starts where it kind of dominated the Brewers uh, kind of news cycle to talk about how good he'd been. But in general, I think the biggest compliment that you can talk that you can say about Woodruff is that just the vast majority of the time people didn't have to talk about him because he threw the ball. Well, I'm one thing I've been thinking about is just like when someone has a, a season or a partial season as good as that was, and then misses six weeks 
or seven weeks or eight weeks or however long it may be. Like, I feel like those things can get lost and I hope it really doesn't. Like, I hope no one loses just how good Brandon Woodruff was this year. Like, for a young pitcher to, you know, have the questions going into the season, can he make it? Is it going to work out? Is he going to take that next step? And he does take that next step and he's solid and he's that guy in your rotation. And then you lose him for however long. You to- maybe he loses some momentum if that's a real thing uh, in growing to become a better pitcher. But I just hope it, it's not lost just how good he was. Yeah, and it does well, sometimes get lost because we'll go into the offseason and like especially if he's barely able to pitch in September or let's say he comes back and he's just not quite right. Like he's not yep. for one reason or another is not quite where he was. And people will start to question the breakout and go, well, he really, what last we saw him, he wasn't very good. So (laughs) we really, we don't have, you know, a a solid number two in Brandon Woodruff, which is, you know, really what he looked like. He looked like he was a a very solid number two to me uh, by the time he got hurt. So, yeah. Well, and I guess to to think about it, put it in context, right? There are 103 pitchers who have thrown 75 innings this year, right? So out out of 103, if you go by baseball prospectuses, DRA, deserved runs average, right? And we talked about it a little bit. Uh, I did a kind of explainer video or video uh, explainer podcast. Nobody wants to see my face. Uh, we did an, an explainer podcast on like some of the advanced metrics. So you can always go back if you want to learn more about DRA. But out of those 100 plus pitchers, where do you think Brandon Woodruff ranks in terms of his DRA? which is kind of like what he deserves and how good he has been on his own, kind of regardless of, of defense. 20? I'd say like 15-ish. Yeah, he's number 12. Wow. Yeah. yeah. He's, number, he's number 12 with a 281 uh, DRA. That's better than Chris Sale. That's better than Zach Granke. That's better than Garrett Cole. It's better than Patrick Corbin. Better than Sonny Gray. Better than Justin Verlander. Like He was fantastic this year. Yeah, he yeah. really has been quite good. So it's going to be a tough one. And like JP kind of hinted at, we'll get to it more in a minute, but he wasn't the only one this week, and they're going to have to figure out some things here. But moving on uh, to the catastrophe that was the Red Series for the most part, uh, on Monday, uh, they came back, and uh, Chase Anderson was had kind of one of his more mess starts of the year, but the Brewers came back on a Tyler Saladino Grand Slam, his second in two days. I mean, we do really need to talk about this because... It had gotten so toxic on Twitter with the Tyler Saladino takes of people just wanting him not just off the team, not just fired into the sun, but like with with extreme pain, like off the team and then back to back grand slams and in, in back to back days. But unfortunately, uh, Jeremy Jeffress gave up a, a, a second two run shot of the game to Jose Peraza. And that was was it Peraza. Is that right? Yeah, I thought yeah. it was Peraza. Um, so they ended up losing that game in kind of a – it was a weird game, too, because early on it didn't look like they were, were really going anywhere. They take the lead, and there's the excitement of that, and then Jeffress gives that up. Um, it was a rough one, especially considering their kind of up-and-down season against the Reds. They are 500 against the Reds this year, and it's not where you want to be against a team that's fourth in the division. But the Reds are not a terrible team. Actually, the Reds have a better run differential than the Brewers. So – that was a rough one. And then they absolutely get pummeled on Tuesday. And uh, Davies has a bad start. He gives up seven runs. I think he was in four innings and was just really bad. We left the game early. It was, that was <sighs> awful. We, actually, we also left Monday early, which that was a mistake because we missed the Saladino <laughs> slam. So, but then we also missed the, the Jeffress blowing of the game. So. Um, so anyway, they lose the first two against the Reds. And then on Wednesday, 
Shasin gives up runs early, which is what he's been doing, and then leaves the game with a strained oblique. And I haven't heard a specific timeline the same way. I don't know if you guys have a specific timeline on him. They're not talking like six weeks because it's technically the same sort of injury as Woodruff has, but they aren't being as specific about it. So he leaves, and then the Brewers' bullpen comes in and absolutely shuts things down. It doesn't allow another run the rest of the game and gives the offense a chance to take the lead and come back and win. Josh Hader pitches the seventh and eighth inning, and then Freddie Peralta gets the ninth and was very successful in that role, and he continued on to that, which are we looking now at Freddie Peralta because of the fact that we, we now know he did come in on Saturday night as well to pitch the ninth and the tenth, and he did give up a run there, but that'll happen. Freddie Peralta doesn't look like he's going to be moved back into the rotation to fill, does it? I mean, that's my read on the situation at this moment. It doesn't seem like it's heading that direction, does it? I mean, a guy's nickname is Freddie Fastball, right? Like, that, that seems to scream relief pitcher to me, right? Like, I, I just don't know if he has enough of a, a pitch mix to actually go out there and be a starter every day. And, and maybe this works out. Like, you, you saw him, I think, he, what, he hit 98 on the gun the other night? Like, it, okay, if you get a couple more miles per hour out of it, okay, maybe this can play as a reliever. So I, I don't know. I, I think it kind of makes sense, but I, what do you think, JP? Well, I mean, I think ultimately the Brewers are in a really strange situation in which they're needing to cover so many places in their starting rotation, but their bullpen has been bad. Yeah. Uh, and so Freddie Peralta is starting to show that um, he's starting to show the consistency that he had lacked for so long as a starting pitcher. And yeah, it's only, you know, a couple of outings in which he's just looked dynamite out of the pen. But uh, it, it's a positive movement and it's somebody that's allowing or at least makes counsel comfortable enough that he can start to deploy Hater in a different way that probably makes Hater more valuable to the team. And so that's a really positive situation. And so I would normally say that, yeah, if you could move Peralta in for a couple of starts, that's probably fine. But the Brewers' bullpen, as currently constructed and as currently pitching, needs needs Peralta uh, in it. And so I would imagine that they will try to do everything that they can to keep him there. Yeah, that's, that's my take on it at this point, too. We'll see. There's going to be all kinds of movement over the next few days. They're going to bring in help to the rotation, the bullpen. I think both, probably. I think we're going to see some additions in both sides of it. It's just a question of how impactful they're going to be. So we'll, we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But moving on to the weekend, we had the Friday night game against the Cubs, which was absolutely magical. It was awesome. one of those games. Yeah. The Brewers fell behind on a two-run shot in the sixth inning. Uh, and then in the seventh, uh, scratched a run. And in the eighth, then... Gamble came up with the bases loaded, I believe, and drove in two runs with a single and took the lead. And Hader came in and, and shut the door. And it was absolutely wonderful. <laughs> if, if I can get Hader versus Rizzo against each other in big situations for the, uh, the rest of time, I'm all the way in. Because it is fantastic watching those two. Like, and, and I know some of Hader's like, first big spots when he first got to the majors were against Rizzo, but it just feels like every time there's a Cubs series, there's always a monster at bat that's Hater versus Rizzo, and I absolutely love it. It's the best. Yeah, and Rizzo does have a history of hitting Hater, but Hater also has a history of getting Rizzo out in some big spots too. So it the drama is definitely there. Uh, any big takeaways from you on on the Friday night game, JP? 
No, I mean, the biggest thing about the Friday night game is is just they need to be able to take games against the Cubs. I think not necessarily just for the for the division, which of course is important, but um, I think after the Red Series, if the Brewers would have lost the series to the Cubs, uh, like Twitter would be a less pleasant space than maybe it, it is otherwise. It, um, that seems so. hard sometimes for it to be less pleasant, <laughs> but yet <laughs> it is it is totally possible. Let me tell you, as a historian, when everyone's like, oh, it couldn't be any worse, it everything can always, it can get, always worse. get worse. <laughs> it can always get worse. Always get worse. The earth is still spinning. It can always get worse. Um, uh, and it, the, the whole thing about baseball, too. They're like, call up so-and-so from AAA. It couldn't be any worse than whoever they... I was like, have you watched? It can always get worse. Always. There's always somebody that can perform worse than whoever you don't like. Okay, so moving on to the Saturday game, which was a masterpiece. Now, first off, I was there in attendance with my in-laws, and we have this history of going to games where it's ungodly hot outside, but they have to close the roof because of weather. So Miller Park Park turns into a giant schwitz, and you get like the, you know, just the sweating and the disgustingness. And added to that was the Cubs fans, and we tried to warn my in-laws about this. They're not from the area. I tried to warn them that, like, this is a Cubs game. It's going to be different. This is not the laid-back, relaxed atmosphere. And they kind of didn't believe us. And then once we got to the game, uh, they were like, wow, there's a lot of really obnoxious people here. <laughs> like, yep, <laughs> that's, it's a Brewers-Cubs game on a Saturday night. That's, that's how that goes. So anyway, uh, the Brewers in this game came back again from a 2-0 deficit. This was an early 2-0 deficit. And... Uh, They drew to a tie, and then the Cubs took a – so Matt Gamble hit – or Matt Gamble. (laughs) Ben Gamble hit a home run, uh, and the Brewers tie the game. And then in the 10th inning – and the the Brewers had multiple chances to score. In the 10th inning, the Cubs get a home run from Albert Elmore Jr., and the Brewers come up in the bottom half of that inning – and against Craig Kimbrell, the $50 million man, who a lot of people all offseason were calling for the Brewers to sign an into the season. And first Christian Yelich goes yard. Then uh, they get another runner on base. I can't remember who it was because it was a pinch hitter in the three spot. And then Keston Hira knocks one out for his first kind of signature moment, I think, as a Brewer. Uh, though maybe you could point to the Pittsburgh. I would say I'm pretty sure that it was Tyler Saladino who got on base. Oh, was it Saladino? Okay. I'm almost positive. I'm not 100% sure on that. Okay. So, yeah, because it was they had moved the pitching spot to the third spot in the lineup at that point. So there was, there was something going on there. But anyway, Keston Hira has his massive moment at home against the, uh, uh, against the Cubs. And I, I'm not going to lie. I, I may have celebrated very loudly in my section. And I uh, looked at my mother-in-law and showed her my hands, and they were so red that they were stinging from having clapped so loud, <laughs> like really, really loud in the in the hallways and everything, really loud clapping. So you needed you needed thunder sticks. Oh, that would have been perfect. That would have really, yeah. really been perfect. So anyway, that game will go down. I, if this turns out to be a pretty successful season for the Brewers and the jury is still very well out on that at this point, I think that one's going to go down as one of the signature games of the year. Here's just in a spot now where uh, he comes up and I, I'm just expecting it to be a beautiful piece of hitting somewhere. Like it, it's, it's, it's straight up bronze stuff from like Oh seven where you didn't know where the ball was going to go. Maybe it was opposite field. Maybe it was like a crushed gapper. Like no matter what, somehow he's going to barrel it 
and somehow it's going to go a long ways. And it's just like, it, it doesn't even seem possible for someone that young, that early in his career to have the at-bats that he does. Yeah, he is a special, special hitter at this point. And uh, you know, credit JP, you were the one saying that he should have been up and not been sent back down early in the season. And uh, there was some disagreement on that point. But yeah, I mean, it, you do wonder what this season would look like. And we actually have a question here from PB Brewcrew. Uh, on our Patreon page. Will Keston Hero win the NL Rookie of the Year? Um, no. Yeah, it, this is it's a tough one this year. He, no. he, he doesn't have enough. Like He's not going to have enough counting stats. Like There's no way. Like there, uh, Pete Alonso was an all-star. Yeah, I was going to say, Pete Alonso is going to win. Pete right. Alonso is going to set the rookie home run record unless he gets hurt. Like yes. Basically, he's... I think he's very close already to that point. He's, he's, already at, two he's at 34. Like, and I think it's... Yeah, what, it was a McGuire, right? It's I'd like say, 38 or 39 or something. He's going to yeah. go well past 40. I would say Tatis Jr. also would be in front of, yeah, in front I of think that's as well. Yeah, I, I wrote down um, a couple but, other guys, too. Like Chris Paddock is having a, a wonderful rookie year as well, though I think pitchers sometimes get the short end it's of more the stick on that. Yeah. It's harder. And Brian Reynolds in Pittsburgh deserves a shout, too. He's having a fantastic rookie year, kind of... Uh, out of nowhere, I don't want to say completely out of nowhere. He was known as a prospect, but he wasn't a, a top flight prospect the way these other three were. Yeah, but I think uh, one quick thing I wanted to, to touch on for Hira, um, just because I've been talking like I was uh, texting with a, a couple of people in, in other organizations recently. And like it reminded me that, um, you know, there, there was a, a different organization that basically said if it weren't for his elbow in the draft that they would have they easily had him as the as going one one like that. He was clearly the best hitter in the entire draft. But they were just like everybody was like, we think he needs Tommy John surgery. Like, we don't know. OK, so I got to I got to ask you about this, though, because that has always struck me as completely asinine because. Tommy John surgery, even for pitchers at this point, is a very high success rate surgery, and you don't know 100% if a guy's going to come back, but it, it shouldn't be that big of a deterrent. For hitters, it's way, way less. They, it never derails careers for hitters. And like, like, if you're worried about, if, unless you think Hira is so much better, just so much better than your second best prospect, you're going to take the person that you know that doesn't need surgery. Yeah, but even so, like if you're a, if the question is because they couldn't see him at second base, this I understand a little bit more because if I'm, they couldn't I'm see him at second base, so they didn't really know. But even so, if he hits like he's hitting, dude can play any position on the field. He can be a left fielder. It's fine. It, I, know it, I know that, but Tommy John surgery is not a like it's not a sure thing. You, I mean, it's I understand not. that, but for position players, it's almost a sure thing. And so like, if you're an organization that's just about to drop seven million on a player, you are going to take somebody that you're not going to say like I'm going to invest seven seven million dollars in him, and I know that he's going to need to go under the knife. Yeah, um, I guess I just I wonder about not necessarily the 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 first few spots in the draft, but the people who are passing him on at five, six, seven, eight. That just seems really weird. Yeah, I mean that that's fair, but if you're also like, you know, where do you where do you put him defensively? That that is a question, but then somebody else was uh, who I was talking to in a different organization said that as um, in college that basically they put a seven on his on his hit and a six on his power, and he, they were just like we always knew that he was a special hitter. A seven hit and a six power for a guy who can quite likely play second base in the big leagues—that's a like potential MVP profile. 
nobody knew that he could quite likely play second base. We didn't even know. You could go back to our minor league podcast and we're like maybe like we have no idea what he can play defense well because he hadn't done it in a few years and people hadn't seen it like he had basically not done it since his freshman year at that point yeah at that point he hadn't even done it then they were talking about moving him to like center field but they were like who knows maybe his arm's gonna break they were like we don't even know if we can throw it to first base okay so like fair point i mean it Keston here is amazing i was just gonna say i don't really care how it happened like i'm just happy that he's a brewer and i get to watch him every day um, so, also, just some breaking news before we get into some other stuff here. Uh, so, apparently, the New York Mets are, are uh, doing some things. And it, it looks like it has been finalized in which Marcus Stroman is going to New York in return for two pitching prospects, Anthony Kay and, and Simeon Woods Richardson. Okay. You so, said things. Is it multiple things yet, or is it still just a thing? It, well, they are very much in talks to uh, move Noah Syndergaard. But at the beginning, it sounded like the Stroman deal was going to be dependent on on uh, Syndergaard being kind of arranged first, that it, they didn't want to do the Stroman deal unless they got something for Syndergaard. But by all accounts, it sounds like the Stroman deal is done. Okay, I have and a question actually about Syndergaard. So let's just jump to that right now. Dan Larson on Twitter asked, assuming he was actually gettable for us, would you trade the top four to six guys in the farm for Noah Syndergaard? Would you rather have his injury risk he carries but the extra year of control through 2021, or would you prefer a one-plus-year guy like Stroman or Minor? I'm assuming that, that here is not counted, right? Uh, here is not a prospect anymore, so yes, we can take that off. Yeah, here is not a – he's lost his rookie eligibility. This is officially his rookie year now. Okay, then yeah, I do it. So you're talking about the top. So if we say four to six, that would encompass Terang. That would encompass Lutz, no seventy. Feliciano. Yeah. Right. No okay. Prospects. I would absolutely do that. You would. You would clear that out. How do you feel about that? I mean, if there were, if there, this is really rough to say. Like, if there were actually prospects, I felt good about. I'd be like, no, you can't do that. But I, I, I mean, I like, I don't see a ton of studs like there's a reason why the Brewers pop prospects are ranked near the very bottom if not the very bottom of the league like okay am I going to de- deplete it even more yeah probably but the window for Yelich being awesome and on a great contract like not just awesome but awesome and underpaid then Kane like all the like how all of that works together like I just think you know, you got to strike. And that's, I mean, I understand in a small market, it's tough. You're trying to build something sustainable. But also, if you have a real window and you have an MVP, you kind of got to go for it. Yeah, I mean, I understand the temptation of it. But I just, when you're talking about, if you say top six prospects in the system, I'm saying no way. Top four, uh, get stuff. And it's also dependent on who's top four, top six you're talking about. Oh, my God. If if you told them that you could take any single prospect that they wanted and and Kira was and Hero was not involved and they could take any four that they wanted, you'd do that every day of the week. I would. Uh, no, I said, you like the royal you. Like the, you should. <laughs> I I know that you're not going to do that. Um, but the thing is, is like we have seen, we've done this long enough to know that you can overhaul a system in two or three years. It is it, it is ridiculous to me to say that like two years of Syndergaard is 
two plus years of Syndergaard. It's this yeah, two plus, plus two more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two plus years of Syndergaard is somehow uh, not valuable enough to to lose like four or six guys that like might not be everyday guys. No, they might not. But there is such value. I've always been a, a believer in getting you know three four guys getting a lot of players back because it gives you more chances if you're getting guys who have some upside more chances for somebody to break out and really turn into a special player do you and feel I think like they have do you feel like that, that upside okay that's what i was just gonna ask. i do think they have some of that i mean it's hey, but what if i said that noah Syndergaard has considerable upside he does he also has some injury downside that you have to take into account single player that you're talking about is injury downside there every single player does have it Syndergaard, i think has a bit more i mean you're talking about a guy who throws ungodly hard and has had a history of nagging injuries from that that he's had to deal with so i mean i think you have to also account for that it would be a lot more palatable if this was like the last piece that they needed and it was a hitter that would be a little bit easier for me. The The risk of any pitcher is just kind of tough. And he's a particularly sort of risky guy because of just how hard he throws and the fact that he's you know, kind of consistently missed some time. So anyway, uh, getting back to it, this Sunday game, we're not even going to talk about because the Brewers got their heads handed to them by the Cubs. Uh, the one thing we should kind of note, though, is uh, Zach Davies had his second straight bad outing. This time he got bombed twice by Kyle Schwarber and so he once again gave up seven runs I think in four or five innings um level of concern about Zach Davies at this point guys uh Eric man it's it's a struggle watching him at this point like you you just don't feel good about I I, I, I can't even put it into like better thoughts than that like I, I I see him take them out and I'm just like I don't think this is going to go well. And that's that's a really rough spot to be in for, for any starting pitcher, especially a starting pitcher that doesn't throw particularly hard and also isn't locating all that well at the moment. Like it, It's rough. And that's the problem is because he's so dependent on that location that when it's not there, he can just get absolutely bombed like he did. Um, JP? Uh, I don't have much concern. I'm, I mean, Zach Davies is what Zach Davies is. He's going to go through stretches like this every single year. Uh, and we and we talked about that last week. Um, and I think he will go through stretches in which he's still very, very good. I think he will go through some stretches where he gets bombed. Uh, and that's just the Brewers rotation right now outside of Brandon Woodruff. All right. So speaking of the Brewers rotation, um, we've already talked a bunch about Brandon Woodruff being uh, hurt. Julie Chassin also hurt. So he's going to be out a while. And then on Friday night, we didn't really talk about this. Gio got hurt and had to leave the game. And right away after the game said, well, this was a situation where I felt it was best to leave because Hauser was already up and ready to go. He was already set. And so there wasn't like a real need for me to stand. And I was getting towards the end of the night anyway. So just be careful with it. And on Saturday, I believe his quote was that he felt just the normal soreness, like the, the day after starting sort of stuff. Um levels of concern about him at this point because that's another guy when you go through a rotation and three of your five starting pitchers leave the game hurt it is kind of panic inducing yeah i was gonna say it's not none of the i don't think any of these and jp kind of mentioned this earlier like none of these injuries are concerning by themselves like any one of these injuries okay cool you can get through it two of them 
okay, maybe you can get through it. Three of them? That's where it gets really tough because, I mean, they're struggling to even name who the starters are going to be. And I just, I don't, I don't know where they go. So my panic level is, um, one, I don't really panic. Um, like it's a long season. It's, it's 162 games, whatever. Like you're gonna have stretches like this, so it's totally fine. So I, I'm not a panic guy, uh, but it's obviously concerning. Like if, if you're gonna struggle to fill out a rotation, it, it it makes playing every single day really difficult. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm I'm actually a little bit more worried about Geo than I, I kind of thought I would be. Um, and it's not necessarily in just related to the other injuries that have existed uh, over the last like or that have you know happened over the last couple of weeks here. It's the fact that Gio Gonzalez just missed time with quote unquote arm fatigue, and then now is like having shoulder tightness, which just like I guess leads. I don't necessarily know what any of those things mean, other than he's then like his arm doesn't feel right, and it doesn't feel right over an extended period of time. Uh, it could just be, you know, the getting old factor. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a little, it reminds me a lot of, and I'm not, and I don't know what the injuries are for either of these players. So I'm not saying that they're hundred percent the same thing, or we should expect results that are the exact same, but it's a little bit in the same way that like Jeremy Jeffress going back from September all the way to spring training and then at the beginning of of April in which he was just like yeah, I, you know my I got shoulder fatigue like my shoulder kind of is just weak um, but you know nothing doesn't nothing really seems to be wrong I'm going to do my uh, kind of normal ramp up to the season it's just going to be a little bit later I'm going to do some rehab and he just hasn't had it this year and you do wonder is just is he healthy what what's going on with the, the shoulder um, you know Worst case scenario is his shoulder just kind of done. Uh, and Gio Gonzalez, you do wonder at this point if he just starts to go through stretches in which his arm feels weak, his arm feels sore, his shoulder feels sore. Uh, what does that mean in terms of his ability to, to pitch every five days and be able to do it healthy, healthily enough to to consistently produce results? Um, Fingers so crossed not, it doesn't happen in September. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. So we had... It, we had a, a couple weird. of questions here from actually it's basically the same question from two different people. Adam Post on Patreon and Nate Cosington on Twitter asking us basically should these injuries, the Geo one being the most recent, uh, change what the Brewers priorities are at the deadline? Does that change what you think they will do and should do? Because I believe last week, JP, you were pretty adamant that like the big need for them and this was before the Woodruff injury, but the big need for them was bullpen, not rotation. Does all this change your calculus at this point? No, I think I still think bullpen is number one need. 100%. Uh, I think you can get through, and they showed last year that you can get through with a lackluster starting rotation or at least a middling starting rotation if you want to be kind to it, uh, if you've got a dynamite bullpen. And if you've still got situations in which Jeremy Jeffress is a guy that you're putting in high-leverage situations, he he's not ready for it. Uh, and maybe he will be next year. You know, if he can kind of have a, a good, good off season to, to kind of be healthy again. Um, but right now, if Adrian Hauser moves to the rotation uh, in that bullpen right now, there are exactly two people I feel comfortable with. And one of them is Freddie Peralta. And I don't feel that comfortable <laughs> with Freddie Peralta. Yeah. So, okay. That's, that's, that's understandable, Eric. I, I, to me, it, it's been interesting to kind of watch how, 
how people are kind of like consuming this season and thinking about like what the Brewers need because I keep seeing people mention, oh yeah, you know, you got to get a starting pitcher. And like, I just keep coming back to the idea that I don't know how you trade for a starter and you don't trade for a reliever. Like I, I, ju- I just can't imagine this trade deadline going by without getting a reliever. And that's whether or not you trade for a starter. You, you just have to find a way to get that bullpen. Like, this team was constructed as a team that, you know, people probably aren't really going to trust the starting rotation. So if you're not going to trust the starting rotation, you have to make it easier on the starting rotation, and you have to have a solid bullpen. And obviously, this is not it hasn't gone how the Brewers wanted. Like, their bullpen, they constructed it in a way that they thought was going to work. It has not worked. So you have to course correct. Like, you have to make that correction. And that's how... One, hopefully you make your starters a little bit better. That's hopefully how you get through this recent rash of injuries a little bit better. And that's hopefully how you can also get some more value of that starting pitcher. Like if you if you do go out and make a mood for a starting pitcher and that guy can go six or seven innings, pretty regular consistency. I know it's a crazy thing to think about. Um, but if you do go out there and you get a real starting pitcher, then on those other days, if your bullpen is just that much better, your team gets so much better. Like To me, that, that's why this whole this lead up to the trade deadline has been really interesting because I just keep thinking to myself, like, I don't know how you can think about starting pitching when the bullpen looks the way that it looks. Yeah. I, I feel like they do need to add impact relief more than they need to add impact starting at this point. I would, I would agree with that, but I do feel like they have a very strong need for some warm bodies in the, in the rotation. Yeah. Like they, I think they need to get at least one, if not two guys who can at least be passable starters for right now, because I don't think we're going to have a good feel before the trade deadline comes where Gio Gonzalez is at. We're not going to know exactly what, because I think he's going to pitch that Wednesday night after uh, the deadline comes at the, the trade deadline this year is uh, 3 PM central time on Wednesday and Gio's next scheduled start. I think because I we're thinking they're going to probably pitch Hauser on Tuesday night. So Wednesday night is probably Gio so we're not going to know what he looks like until after yeah. that point. I just feel like they have to get some warm bodies. Does that make sense, JP? Like for the rotation, I, mean, I, I guess. But the, there are two. Th- like if you want to say, sure, you want to go and do like a Homer Bailey trade, fine. Like that doesn't. I I guess it is technically a trade, but it's not something that would make me feel any different other than you, know, you have somebody to come in uh, and be able to help out your rotation, and be able to fill out. But I think, uh, number one, it'd be great if they could go out and get an impact starter. Like, I'm not against them getting an impact starter. I don't think they can afford one. That's a different discussion. Yeah. Um, I think if they want to go out and trade a mid-level prospect for Mike Leake, go to town. Great. That, that, that doesn't really bother me. Um, but I think that basically any starter that they add, they're going to have to, like, they might not pitch much in September. Like, I don't think that they're going to be able to go out and afford somebody that is going to be an absolute mainstay in their starting rotation when Woodruff and Chassin hypothetically come back from injury. Okay, that's fair. All right. Um, moving on to some other things. There was a, a report that came out on Saturday, and I saw you react to this. I reacted to it on Twitter. I think we both reacted somewhat skeptically, but I want to talk about this. Ken Rosenthal reported the Brewers kicked around the idea of bolstering their injury depleted rotation by trading one of their potential free agents, catcher Yasmani Grandel or infielder Mike Moustakis. It's unclear whether the concept has advanced beyond internal discussions. JP, you want to go? (laughs) I mean, 
It doesn't. Uh, it's one of those things that you're like, oh man, if you could trade somebody down, uh, kind of ending the near the nearing the end of their contract, and you can go out and add to the starting rotation because that's your biggest need. Man, wouldn't that be great? Of course, it'd be great. Like, but in or basically, what then you would need is an organization that is competitive enough to want to take somebody who only has a two month le- two months left on their contract but still has so much impact starter like has so much impact pitching that they don't mind trading impact pitching and the odds of like that team existing are extremely small yeah uh, and you're not, you're not going to have a rebuilding team that's going to want to take on Mike Bustakis for two and a half months 100% on that and the one thing i did see somebody suggested this was- to me and i'm sorry i can't say offhand right now who it was but on twitter somebody did say what about the possibility of a three-team trade and that did spark at least a little bit of thought for me because yeah i could see a three-team trade somehow being facilitated in this way where you would have a team that maybe has sort of pieces on both ends of this that they would they wouldn't mind giving up to, to facilitate this, but I don't know who that would be. And you also just don't see that many three team trades anymore, no, especially I, in the season. I mean, that's the only way it can happen. Like I, I, I don't, I, it just made no logical sense to me. Like I was trying to think through the hypothetical of a team wanting to both trade for Moustakas or Grandal and then also want to give up an impact start. And it's like, how does that team exist? There's, there's no way a world exists that, I mean, I think some people I've seen on Twitter, some people throw around the Rays a little bit that maybe the Rays would be willing. I know this came up with Jesus Aguilar talks a little bit where, okay, maybe they would give up like a lower end pitcher and get back Jesus Aguilar because they could use a little help there. But it was just like, this seems like such a, a far off, uh, seemingly impossible kind of needle to thread. So of course it'll actually happen. And sure. we're going to sit here looking like we all poo-pooed it and then it actually happens. And <laughs> like, this is something that, the Brewers have been talking about for, you know, it's been rumored to be the case over the over the course of the offseason, right? They were talking about like, well, you know, there've been internal internal discussions of what happens if they trade Travis Shaw for pitching, and then they end up signing Mike Mustakas for third base, and then you're like, well, I mean, sure, great, yeah, you can make that happen. That's great. I just don't. Who's going to do that? Who's going to Who's going to like be like, yeah, I've got I've got the starting pitching that you need. I really have a huge hole at third base that I'd be willing to trade that for, and we're both going to get rid of really quality, you know, quality good two win players back and forth. Like, I don't see that happening, and it's why it didn't happen. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, if the, if that hypothetical team exists, you go nuts. That if you could trade, you know, even Travis Shaw, if you could trade Mike Mustakis, if you could trade. You know, Jesus Aguilar, if you could trade Eric Thames and you can go out and get a starting pitcher that is going to be able to impact the last two months of the of the season and maybe, you know, be controllable, go nuts. I'm just not sure who's going to make that trade. Yeah. Um, another thing came up this week and I actually didn't put it on the rundown, but we can talk about it briefly here. Uh, Travis Shaw was called back up to the start, the Cubs series, and he had absolutely been murdering the baseball in July in AAA. The last numbers I had, he was hitting 333, 492, 792, but I think it that's a little bit out of date, but he was really killing the ball in AAA, so he got called back up. And I noted this on Twitter because it was a little interesting to me. From now, meaning Monday, so when you're probably listening to this, to the time when September call-ups happen, so the end of October, or the, sorry, the end of August, the Brewers have six off days. The most games they will play is nine in a row, and that's actually coming up starting on Tuesday, which we'll talk about that stupid road trip in a minute, but... Is this what's happening now? Are they going to try to like run a 
a 12-man pitching staff, which most teams really don't do anymore, a 12-man pitching staff and 13 position players for the balance of August just because they have so many off days and they can continue to shuffle and do that. Is that, is that what we missed? Because we were talking about this last week, JP, and we were wondering what the path back to the big leagues was for Travis Shaw. There just didn't seem to be a path back. Is this the path back that they just have all these off days so they can they have more wiggle room with their pitching because of that extra time? Sure, but when we were talking about a path back, didn't mean that he like couldn't be on the on the twenty five man roster. It was like how what's his path back to regular playing time? And yeah, I don't no, I think we have an answer to that. And we had a question from Mark Putzgarby about that. Can Shaw play the outfield? He did in Boston three years ago. <laughs> I mean, not well in the same way that Eric Thames can play right field. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, I went back and looked. I didn't see any Travis Shaw in the outfield in AAA over the last like couple weeks. And you would think if their plan was, hey, we're going to play Travis yeah. Shaw some in the outfield, they would have at least told him to go and do it in AAA since he was there anyway. Like, no, but and where was he playing in AAA? He was playing first base. Well, he was he was at first, he was at third, and he was at DH. So he right, but kind he of bounced around. Base. He was playing first base quite a bit. He was at first base quite a bit. Yeah, and we already have seen him at first base. In this series, he started at first base on Friday and Eric Thames went out to to right field. So that gives you an idea. They'd rather have Eric Thames in right field than they would have Travis Shaw. So I think that kind of answers that question. Yeah, I don't think he can play outfield, but I mean, which is fine. Like He's just going to be in a really tough spot because the Brewers have other players that are, well, much better than him at the moment. Like, that's just that's just how it is. And again, you know, maybe he can find his his stroke again at some point. But at this moment, it's not there. So I'm. I was going to say, the other thing to keep in mind, too, and I apologize for cutting you off here, is that Eric Thames, even though he actually had been going quite well for a stretch, has not been that great in July. No, he's been on a bit of a cold run at the same time that Aguilar had actually started to hit more. So that's yeah. at least, you know, that so, cuts so, back yeah, the other direction like, a little bit. So there is there is a path to say maybe Travis Shaw takes some more plate appearances at first base. But then again, you're carrying somebody in Eric Thames that you're just like not really going to use then so I don't again that's not really like a that doesn't really answer my question in terms of like what his path back is because then again you're just carrying people then you're not planning to use which is fine I guess if you can make it work with all the off days but that's not really a sustainable solution in my mind no um okay another thing that is coming up and this really got under my skin when I actually looked at it and this is stupid Steve would cut me off right now but I'm hosting, so he doesn't get to cut me off. I, I already rolled my eyes like in advance when I saw this on the rundown. <laughs> so the Brewers have a really stupid road trip coming up. They're going in nine days. They have an off day on Monday, this, following, this coming Monday. But they then go to Oakland for three days. Then they immediately go to Wrigley Field. And then they immediately go to Pittsburgh. So they are doing a cross-country road trip, essentially. I mean, they're not going all the way to the East Coast, but they're getting pretty close. And they're doing this without an off day. And they also will be doing this with a uh, a one o'clock start on Friday against the Cubs at Wrigley after they've finished up up in the West Coast and flown, you know, 2000 miles back to Chicago. So this seems pretty stupid on a number of levels that MLB let this happen, that they have to do this cross country road trip in the middle of August with no off days when they could have just as easily done something like moving the Brewers uh, Oakland series to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and had it start, you know, late on Monday night and then had an off day and whatever. It just seems like stupid scheduling and it's annoying. And I'm also annoyed because the Cubs, the Cubs have a, 
this situation where they're going to be coming back from San Diego in September, and they play on a afternoon game in uh, on a Thursday, and then they have a Friday start during the day because they're mandated to play day games at home. And the Cubs have moved that start back to 3 p.m. instead of 1 p.m. So it's just all of the stupid scheduling stuff that happens. You sound like, uh, you, it, so there are two things here that, that immediately come to my mind. And, um, and Eric, you're, you're free to be much nicer to Ryan than I'm about to be. Uh, is, <laughs> he doesn't uh, have to be, though. <laughs> uh, so uh, you sound a lot like the Cubs last year, complaining about all the off days that the Brewers got late in the season. And then we're all complaining that, you know, that they didn't get any. And we were all like, well, that's because we went through a terrible stretch in, in June and July. And that's like sometimes how life works. Uh, and the other thing is you sound like Jose Mourinho complaining about everything uh, because like the powers that be are somehow against you and they're scheduling fo- when like just like life happens. It's a day. No, this is incompetence. This isn't this isn't some sort of grand conspiracy. <laughs> this is just incompetence <laughs> at the MLB. It is absolutely it is absolutely a conspiracy to you that somehow MLB is not making this move and then somehow the Cubs are able to do these things and nobody cares and it negatively affects the impact it negatively affects the team that you root for well nobody can tell the Cubs what to do with their schedule or apparently their uh, their setting of uh, um, rain delays where they they can just call off games when they want like apparently the Cubs just get to do that stuff willy nilly however they want I was actually in Chicago for that series. Oh, were you really? Yeah. Okay. I went to the game on Friday and then Saturday. I was just like, what? I was like, I got rained on much harder on Friday than the rain that was coming down. So I was, I was legitimately mad. I was like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever been a part of. JP is really rolling his eyes. He's kind of scratching at his eyes now. Oh no, I'm just tired. I had a, I was at a (laughs) wedding over the weekend. Um, I'm not, I'm not as young as I used to be. I get tired now. Um, and, uh, no, I was, but it's definitely not a conspiracy that you're upset that the Cubs can definitely do whatever they want. MLB doesn't get upset. Oh, no. I mean, they because of the, the stupidness of Wrigley Field and the, they no. have all these rules with the Neighborhood Association. I understand that. But I'm, I'm telling Steve and we're going to move on to a different question. <laughs> all, right. all right. So um, we have a question from uh, James Langerhair. And this is actually a few weeks old now, but this is a good one. And it is because this has happened two years in a row now. Which White Sox reliever will David Stearns trade for this year? Who is he going to trade for? Who wants well, to take this one first? I was going to say, I'm not sure there are going to be too many White Sox relievers on the market. Uh, but there is a guy who is very likely to be on the market. Alex Colomay. Yes, Alex Colomay, yeah. who was traded last year from the Rays to the Mariners, right? I think he, he did a year with the Mariners. Yeah, well, half year with the Mariners, yeah. Yeah, okay. Half year with the Mariners. So Alex Colomay would kind of be my pick here. Is there anybody else on the <laughs> <laughs> on the White Sox roster that could potentially be a, a brewer by you know, Wednesday night? When I was at Miller Park and saw Swarzak pitch the other night, I was like, oh, yeah, that, that takes me back. That yeah. takes well, me that back. Actually, that was actually a pretty good trade, though. Yeah. Oh, Swarzak was way better than we had any right to hope he was going to be. He yeah. was... Shut down. And they actually got some reasonable usage out of, oh, no, and I'm completely blanking on his name last year, the lefty that they traded for uh, right before the August deadline. Um, what, are you t- what are you talking about? The left-handed reliever that they traded for from the White Sox right before the August deadline. He was a pure lefty specialist. Oh, no. I can't think of his name. Oh, no. oh uh, Cedeno. Yeah. Yeah, Xavier Cedeno. Thank you. Yeah. So 
it's been two years in a row. Cody anytime well again. Yeah, anytime they've contended, they've traded for a White Sox reliever, and it's generally led to good things. So, like, <laughs> I mean, if you want if you want to take on Kelvin Herrera and think you can get him to throw strikes again, maybe he's available. Oh, hmm. there's a shout. Okay, that's I Kelvin mean, Herrera. He hasn't been very good, but uh, but he's somebody that has shown it in the past. He has been uh, great. Yeah, and actually, Kelvin Herrera is like somebody that I first saw pitch against uh the timber rattlers and he was just like i'd never heard of him and he was not really high on any uh like prospect lists or anything like that and dude was coming out like throwing 90 96 97 out of <laughs> and i was like who is this guy um and then they ended up moving him to to the to be a reliever he's obviously been good aj bomber's been been good but i can't imagine that he's available i was going to ask you about this because you now host another podcast as well where you guys talk about dynasty leagues and uh, Bomber seems like a guy that you might want to grab right now if you're in a dynasty league because he could be getting saves very quickly here if Colome is traded, right? Yeah, I would imagine. There's a there's a small chance that they go to Herrera just because of kind of the fact that he's been a closer in the past and he's more of a veteran. But if you're looking for the best arm uh, outside of Colome, I would say that Aaron Bummer is definitely that guy. Uh, do we yeah. know anything about this Evan Marshall fellow? Because he's got a 263 ERA, 27 innings, and oh, only 20 strikeouts and eight walks. Eh, yeah. Speak up. Oh, did he? I don't. Uh, I don't have any recollection he, of that. He must have been competent. Be, I think he was used to be a uh, used to be a Cub. Used to be a Red. Am I right on that? I, I have, have no to, idea. Let's say I'm going to look at it on the fly here, but I'm pretty sure that he was. Oh no! This is a different Marshall. This dude who was with the Mariners for a while, he was with Cleveland a little bit last year. He's just kind of been a journeyman who's bounced around. Who am I thinking of in terms of Marshall? Anyway, that's not important. Mike? No, not Mike Marshall. That's <laughs> that's older. Um, Mike Marshall. I'm okay. Thinking Marshall. I'm and thinking of Sean Marshall. That's who it was. We have a couple more questions here. Um, Who's an underrated pickup you'd like to see the Brewers make? One that probably wouldn't have as many people bat an eye, but would improve the team along the margins. And then this is from Spencer um, Michaelis, I believe. And uh, his suggestion was Chris Martin from the Rangers. And he's still with the Rangers as far as I can tell. I checked it before we started. So who knows yeah, if he's he been is. traded since. I was going to say, if you are looking for saves, he is potentially being uh, given the ninth inning role now that Sean Kelly is injured. So Chris, Mar Chris Martin is uh, a dude who's been quite good um, for for Texas this year. I'm not necessarily sure that he's going to be on the market. Um, he might be. I think Jose Leclerc is probably the guy that gets moved in Texas if anybody gets moved. But but Chris Martin is one of the more consistent guys in the bullpen uh, this year for Texas. Yeah, he's rocking a 10.75 K to walk ratio right now. 10.75 strikeout to walk? I, I wish I was lying, but that is... Holy that hell. Is so he he's he's kind of sneaky. Um, obviously, like a thirty three year old, so not a not a ton of upside. But I don't think the Buck or excuse me, the Brewers. <laughs> man, wow, kind of get rid of my day job there for a second. My bad, guys. Uh, I, I don't think the Brewers are really looking for an upside play. Like you're looking for someone that can eat up innings and get the job done this year, and that that would help. Yeah. Do you think they're looking for anybody that's not going to be around next year? I think a, a reliever, absolutely. At a low cost. I mean, I don't think they're going to trade anybody out of their top seven or eight prospects for a pure rental. Yeah. I would be surprised at that. But if you, you're getting a guy for multiple years, yeah. I, I, or if a guy is just coming for, you know, 
I don't know. What did Anthony Swarzak get traded for? The outfielder that we got. He was the Ryan third. Cordell. Yeah, Ryan Cordell. Yeah, like mm-hmm. that. I could see that happening. There's, there's no reason that couldn't happen. Yeah, well, sure. honestly, in my mind, I'm kind of imagining the reliever that they add is just a rental. Like it, that's just kind of how I see it. Just especially because of what they have in the farm system right now, and like how somewhat depleted it is. Like it, it almost has to be something that you're just like, all right, we got to patch it for this year, and we'll, we'll get through. Like, but we need a reliever to make this bullpen better. Yeah, I mean, I th- I still think that because even the controllable relievers that figure to be available aren't necessarily high end guys. Um, I think that they can probably cobble something together for them. But yeah, I think that if they do, you know, th- and they're, they're actually figured to be quite a lot of guys that are out there. I mean, Jake Dykeman is somebody that I talked about on, on the mini pod this past week, he ended up going to Oakland and he didn't go for anything all that expensive either. And he's controllable for more than one year. Obviously a lot of his attraction is because of the strikeout rate and his, an- his analytical prowess. It's not necessarily his run prevention this year. So it's a little bit different than some of the other guys who might be available, whether it's uh, Shane Green, who I talked about last week. Um, Will Smith, obviously, will be more of a rental, but he'll he'll be kind of the top end of the market. And I think if you do want to say, like, if you, if, if you wanted to say, I want to get Sam Dyson, right, who Ryan was going to talk about last week when we were talking about underrated guys, I can't imagine, even though he's, more, he's controllable for more than one year, he's not going to be a ton because he's not, He's not somebody that you go slot in the ninth inning. No, I can't imagine he would cost that much. So that's I mean, a potential. I mean, guy. He'll cost more than you know. He'll cost more than probably Ryan Cordell, but I wouldn't imagine that he's going to be too expensive. No, probably not. Do um, you think this is kind of off topic? Do, do either of you think that there are going to be more more teams that are willing to sell than expected this year? Boy, because right now. Like, basically, it's been like, you know, there are like four teams that are selling and, you know, like maybe. But do you think that there's an argument to be said for everything being so com- compact? This, it, that- it's, it, I was going to say, I'm, my, like, I'm so warped because I cover the NBA that it's just like, <laughs> yep, everything's going to happen. Like, there's going to be nothing and then everything is going to happen in the final couple of days. So, like, in my head, like, I just keep thinking, sure, like, I understand there's, you know, a bunch of teams that aren't sure that they want to sell, but... You know, at the end of the day, at the, the the fact that there's not a non-waiver deadline, like it, it's frustrating because it just kind of makes everyone kind of guess where they're going to be. But I think at some point, like some teams are going to make some tough decisions and be like, "Yep, we're going to sell." Like some, like you have to, like if you're really looking at how your organization is going to survive going forward, like okay, five games out, six games out, maybe if it was. If it was last year, if there was still the the second deadline, you'd be like, all right, we'll we'll play out this month and see how it goes. But you got to make some tough decisions right now, and I think there's going to be some organizations out there that don't want to sell, but ultimately say like, yeah, we're going to have to. I mean, well, I think there might be like even a team that sells just one piece, mm. or too, right? buys and sells like the Mets are doing as we speak. Sure, <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But though the Mets seem to really only want to sell if they're going to get major league pieces back. Yeah, well, the Mets are idiots, so that that'll happen. But looking at, I've got all thirty teams in front of me, looking at the standings and going, how many of these teams are pure known sellers at this point? I guess the Mariners would be. We think the Rangers will be, but we don't know for sure. I mean, they've kind of fallen on hard times, and but they're over five hundred, so maybe not. Uh, the Tigers will be, the Royals are, the White Sox are, the Orioles are, the Blue Jays are already engaged in selling, so that's 
for sure happening. The Marlins are. The Mets, God knows, they're back and forth. The Reds and Pirates in our division are both probably should be sellers, but they both kind of did weird things this winter, so you don't know that they actually will be sellers. They're just weird teams. Right, they're weird teams, and you also don't think that they would probably sell to the Brewers. Yeah. Like, that would be a little bit tougher because it's an in-division trade. And then, like, out on the West Coast, who knows? Like, the starting with the Giants are the one everybody wants to know what they're doing with Mad Bum, and who knows? And the Diamondbacks have made some noise about being willing to listen on Robbie Ray, even Zach Grinke. And those have been discussions that have been had, but who knows what they're going to end up doing. The Padres seem more in, in a mindset to like add like a cinder guard for the long term than they are to just like purely well, sell. But, but the thing about the Padres is they've got so many young players that they don't have room for them all. Right. I mean, like they have so got, many outfielders, so many, so many outfielders. They have so many infielders that like Luis Urias wasn't even up on the big league roster because he wasn't going to get playing time. Uh, Ty France, who's killing the ball in triple A is not an impact guy, but is a guy that probably should be up in the big league somewhere. They've got, uh, they've got, whether you're talking about Logan Allen, they've got Cal Quantrill. They've got a lot of like, they've got uh, Lamette up there. Now they've got, uh, Pat- they've got tons of starting, uh, starting pitchers. They've got the ability to move Kirby Yates, even though I still don't think they will, but they've got the ability to move them. And they've still got relievers for days. Um, they're just like, they're loaded. And everybody's been talking about how they're, prospect system has been loaded for years and everyone's like, yeah, well, what do you get with the prospect system? Well, you get you get a team that is uh, six games under and has a bunch of guys who are maybe big league ready or they are big league ready and they're still young enough that like are attractive to teams that want to be able to sell but not really influence their long-term time, timeline of competition or their, their short-term timeline, I suppose I would say. Because if the Mets can go and get I don't know if they can go and get another arm, uh, you know, if they get like a Cal Quantrill and then like Hunter Renfro and and somebody else like for Noah Syndergaard, that's not really that attractive to me. But at the same time, basically, then they added Stroman and then they added three more big league pieces for two minor league pitchers. That ain't that bad. Yeah. No, it's it's an interesting shuffle. We'll see how this all ends up going. It was nice just to have a major move made, but that was when. Eric was walking over to my place. The first thing he said, are you seeing this nonsense? Or just like, what, what are the Mets doing? Like it, they never make any sense, but you know, I guess this could actually kind of work out in their favor if they play it right. But you never want to assume. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not bad on that. Yeah. You don't want to assume that. So anyway, we have a last question of the week and this one's really for you, Eric. Uh, this was from Paul Noonan, who I believe is going to be filling in next week for Steve. So you can look forward to that. I think Paul's been our most frequent guest host when one of us has had to be out so um as someone who's writing about football was greatly influenced by baseball writing and analysis i would like to know if there's something similarly true about this for you eric so i'm trying to figure out how much to nerd out on this but um oh this is a nerdy podcast you can (laughs) you can nerd out pretty good um so essentially like obviously as i as i referenced at the start of this podcast i Got my start writing for Bernie's crew. So obviously I was kind of following JP's lead on, you know, going analytics and like going through some of that stuff. And then, um, you know, I came back and started doing like sports radio over at 105.7 The Fan. And then I 
got a, a job opportunity at Kansas State University where I could get my master's and manage a radio station. So I went and did that. And my thesis was about the use of advanced statistics in baseball broadcasts. So what I did was I interviewed like 10 major league baseball radio broadcasters and talked about, you know, how you try to use advanced statistics. And obviously on some ends I had, um, some more veteran broadcasters that did you talk to Len Casper? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Cause he's notedly good at that. Uh, he's fantastic at it. So uh, I, I talked to a, a, you know, a, a large kind of swath of people and I guess how I'm kind of thinking about this question is that like through all of that, I think I learned a lot of really good things by just kind of BSing with a bunch of broadcasters about how to try to do this. And so like, I, I would say like, in baseball, everything is so, as a basketball writer, it's frustrating how few things are measurable. Like, it, it, you just can't measure things. Like, uh, the, the new big thing is trying to quantify defense for basketball, and no one can do it because it's impossible. Like, it, it, like the, the guarded data, like, okay, you're four feet, eight feet, ten feet, whatever. Like, it's okay, but it's not, it's not great. So you can't really do that. Like, it blocks... Are, are a rare current steals are a rare current. So like, okay, how do you kind of do those things? So like I, since I like kind of started in baseball, I want everything to be quantifiable. And in basketball, there's just so little that is like, it's so hard with five players on the floor and like the, the events, like you don't get head to head events. Like you just have every single play affected by five different people. So how do you try to measure these things? So like that has very much thinking about baseball. Like I'm always after like, okay, how do you quantify something? How do you like measure something that is meaningful? And then how do you like write about it? So like, yeah, that's what part of why baseball is so great for this and why the analytics revolution came first to baseball is you can isolate so many things. Correct. Defense is mostly an individual thing um, in terms of range, at least I, there's some interaction on, on some of the plays, but um, the, the pitcher batter matchup is the core of the game. Yes. And that is, you know, very, very individualized and you can really break that down in a way that you can't with basketball. I know JP and I are both uh, soccer fans and the same issues are yes. run into it with soccer in terms of trying to analyze and figure out how things all fit together because everybody is moving constantly and they're <laughs> weaving and yes. you just don't know how that all interacts. The interaction is what makes the game work and same with basketball. Yeah. And yet it's very hard to measure and quantify in any real meaningful way. So like the, the stuff that fascinates me is like there's always every once in a while you just get stuff that like kind of works. So uh, one of my most favorite articles from this year, I wrote about the Lopez brother effect. And essentially what it is, is Brooke Lopez and Robin Lopez are just mountains of men they're they're huge they're just absolutely huge so anytime they're on the floor and this is measurable for i think they're both in the league 10 years at this point so through each of the 10 years when they're on the floor their team rebounds better neither of them grab a lot of rebounds so like brooke averages like four rebounds a game and everyone's like oh he's a terrible rebounder he, he doesn't help at all but the exact opposite is true the exact opposite is true because his team always rebounds really well and they rebound really well because he's seven feet tall and a monster. So, and he's able to clear out space. For so, other so he can clear out space. Giannis comes in and that's part of the reason why Giannis averages 13 rebounds a game. But like that, I, I loved that article because like 
that's what I'm after. And it, like, it's impossible in basketball. Like you can't really find those things. And in that moment, like I told Brooke, Hey, basketball nerds on the internet have this thing called the Lopez brother effect. What do you think about that? And he was like, Hey, if it's nerds, I'm into it. So, uh, like, <laughs> well, they the, did go to Stanford, right? They did. So he was like, if it's nerdy stuff, I'm into it. Explain it. And I explained it. And he was like, Hey, that's pretty cool. Like that's actually like helping me, you know, show that I have value. And I'm like, yeah, no, you're very valuable. Like, I, I, yes, it's right there. I, we can see the numbers. So, um, I would say like baseball writing, like I'm always after those moments in basketball writing, but they're very hard to come by because those there's just not enough measurable events in a basketball game. So when you're, when you're looking at that, it, it seems like, cause the, the terminology that you're using is like that you want to be able to do that, right? Like, is, yeah. is it, is it something in which you feel like it makes your analysis more valuable to be able to quantify those things? Or do you feel pressure from kind of the sports writing community and whether it's the athletic or otherwise to be able to kind of uh, uh, push your analysis to be able to be a little bit different than other folks who are not necessarily using that quantifiable? Like, is it, is it this way that you just you feel like it's actually really valuable to be able to better understand what's happening on a basketball court? Or is it something that is a, a way to differentiate you from from other people, just- I guess, as a. Sorry, not not to cut you off, but discovery is incredible to me. Like being able to discover something that yeah. that to me is meaningful. That if I can write an article and you learn something or figure out something that you didn't know about the game that wasn't obvious to you by looking at points, rebounds, assists, blocks, steals. Like if I can tell you something that's other than that, like that is to me the most exciting thing about basketball. Cause like, I'm always looking for those things in basketball. So like I, the, one of my other favorite articles that I wrote this year was about Eric Bledsoe and the fact that he gets over screens better than anyone else in the league. I love that article. He's, he's incredible at it. And like, I can't quantify that. Like, like there, yeah. there, there, there's not a percent getting over screens, but he's, absolutely incredible at it and i had him like go through the video with me and like break it down and like hey here's what i'm thinking this is how i do it and yeah like that was that was incredible like that that moment of discovery like when he actually could tell me this is what i do that's different than what other people do i was like whoa i'm like i'm actually onto something so for me like this is all i mean this is the most selfish thing but like it's all about me like i'm like having that moment having that feeling like those are the moments I feel best as a writer. So the, like the athletic isn't like, Hey, uncover some stuff that no one else can. But in my mind, like that's all I want to do when I write about basketball is like, I want to be able to show you something that you're not just going to see from a box score. Right. Well, and that's, and that's, what's really cool though. But that gets to my question is like that article can tell you a lot about a game that you didn't necessarily realize it can bring a lot more value to the analysis, but that's not necessarily doing anything in terms of quantification. No, Right now. And, and and I because my biggest my biggest thing for baseball is I think we've almost gone too far to quantification. Like, sure. I think it's extremely valuable. We use advanced statistics on here all the time. I don't think you can evaluate baseball whatsoever without looking at those t- types of things. But I do wonder if like the kind of analysis that you're talking about and that you're talking about with Bledsoe, like that doesn't happen in baseball writing. Uh, and I think it, it, so what I will say is like, it's really difficult. I think to one, be able to find no matter what game you're playing, no matter what sport we're talking about, it's really difficult to find those skills for certain people. And then it's even more difficult 
to have a player actually be able to explain it. So this this was something I found with Jason Kidd all the time was that like I would ask him a question and you could you could very clearly see him thinking like what are you some sort of idiot? Like how don't you know? Like what because like he's like I mean in many ways like Jason Jason Kidd was a basketball genius. Like when he played like he just this is this is what I know. Like I know these things. I can't explain to you pick and roll defense like I'm just going to go do it. So right. like, that that's a problem when, you know, players become coaches, but I think it's also a problem for players as they like try to serve as some sort of, you know, reference point to fans or to writers to try to say like, "Hey, this is let me try to explain this thing that I do." Cuz a lot of times players just like don't know how they do it. Like they're just like, I, this is what I've been doing my whole life. So I can't really explain it to you. And that was like one of the rare moments where Bledsoe was like, no, this is what I do. This is how I do it. So that made me think of something though, because Jason Kidd kind of had a reputation, especially at the end with the Bucks, as being not exactly like an intellectually curious sort of yes. outreacher that way. And the fact that he just, sort of fell back on, well, this is how it's done because this is my experience and this is whatever. Is that an indicator then that there's maybe something kind of wrong there and that a, a person who's more willing to go deeper into the analysis of this is why things work, this is why things don't work, and really break it down and discuss it, that there's more going on there and that the person is trying to get to another level of understanding and that they're basically they're, they want to have like a growth mindset of well, becoming better. So one thing that kind of fascinated me is, so when I was at ESPN Milwaukee before I got hired for The Athletic, I got to cover the Brewers for two seasons. So one thing that always stood out to me about Craig Council was just like, he's a curious dude. Like he, he's just like thinking through things. And like when you heard him get asked different questions, like you could actually kind of understand that he was thinking through like, okay, this is how I feel, but you know, maybe maybe this other way makes some sense or maybe there's something different I can do and uh, willing to entertain that he might be wrong yeah, or that it, what he thought was true wasn't necessarily had to be true. And, and I mean, I, I think that's how I try to approach things as a writer, but I also think, you know, when you think about coaches, that should be the way that they're kind of approaching their, their life. Like th that should be how they're approaching their job is that I, you know what? I might not have every answer right now. And I think I have, like, I have a, I have a, I have a clear philosophy and I, I know what I want to do, but could I move some of those things around? Yeah. Do you get the sense with Budenholzer that he is more towards the council end of the spectrum? <laughs> yeah, I do. And it's funny because, like, uh, Greg Popovich hates how many threes get shot in the NBA, like, absolutely hates it. So there was, uh, like, a pregame just a pregame scrum that we were talking and he was talking about bud and how much it means to him. And then I was just like, you know, does it, uh, he was talking about how they rarely disagree on things. And I was like, well, it's one of the things, how many threes, like, cause you, you don't really like those. And he was like, Oh, now you're really trying to start some stuff. You're trying to, he's <laughs> like, you should go work in politics. Cause you're trying to start a controversy. I was like, okay, that's not what I was trying to do. But bud has very clearly like gone in a different direction. Like he, he's, he sees what pop does and, well, I don't really care what Pop does. I'm going to go in this direction. So uh, I, I would say Bud is very much that way um, where, you know, like there's just times where he'll be talking about stuff and he's like, you know what? That didn't really work out. And we'll like, we'll try something different and, you know, we'll go a different way. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, to me, that's, I mean, that's 
how I kind of try to live my life. Like thinking about things and being curious. I think I'm a curious person overall, but that's also how I approach writing. And, you know, I think for most coaches, that should be how they approach coaching and sports in general. Like you should, I mean, even players, like you should be thinking about, okay, why am I doing the things that I'm doing? And can I get better by doing them somewhat differently? Excellent. Thank you very much. That is, that is fantastic. That was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for that. Um, (laughs) We need to wrap it up here because we're running very long. And JP, you had an announcement about the contest from last week that we need to get to. So would you like to tell us what the results were? Because this is a squeaker. Absolutely. So as everybody who listened to last week knows, in honor of our 100th episode, giving away uh, Robin Yount bobblehead. And the question or the contest was from Monday until today's game on Sunday, what were the Brewers going to hit batting average wise with runners in scoring position? Right. So everybody got their numbers in uh, and they were 11 for 41 with runners in scoring position, which is a 268 batting average. And James Vandenberg hit the nail on the head like 100 percent. He he was in with a 268 guess, which not only is that extremely impressive, but we had uh, Cody. Uh, I, I believe it would be pronounced uh, Dangliser. I apologize, Cody, if I mispronounced your name, was in with 267. <laughs> so, so basically uh, like a rounding situation. Like Absolutely. Well, it was just a little bit above 268. So Cody shouldn't feel like two. It was like 268.2 or something like that. Okay, so it was above 268. We weren't rounding yeah. in but, between. But, oh, yikes. But any other any other time, James, uh, Cody would have been in, but James uh, got it directly on the head. I'm going to give uh, a shout out to Michael Livingston, who thought that we were going to be so bad that we were going to hit two two twelve with runners in scoring position? <laughs> like I I respect that so much. When I did so, I did some uh, like some daily fantasy stuff for a while when it was first coming out for BP, and it was like what I always wanted to end up doing when I wasn't sure what to do was just like put in the opposing pitcher who was facing the Brewers. So like if he ended up getting lit up, like it was fine because then the Brewers won, uh, and, and, and if, like the pitcher absolutely shut down the Brewers. I wouldn't feel too bad because then I just like won a bunch of money. Uh, so I I appreciate that Michael Livingston was like, look, if we hit great with runners in scoring position all week, then great. You know the Brewers did did a good job. But if not, man, the Robin had Robin me out bobblehead mine. <laughs> Unfortunately, Michael, they were a little bit better. All right. So congratulations to James. Um, oh, I should say, James, make sure you get us your address. Uh, email us at milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com with your address, and I'll make sure I get it out this week in the mail. All right. And you can join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash tailgate. Patrons at the M&B and Ball and Glove levels receive the monthly Minor League Extra podcast. As always, follow us on Twitter at tailgate. You can also submit questions to milwaukees.tailgate at gmail.com or through our Facebook page for Milwaukee's Tailgate Baseball Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. You can also leave reviews, uh, help people find the podcast. Thanks for listening and look for us again next week on Milwaukee's Tailgate. Hey.